Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis, aka crumbly joints. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week, we have the privilege of discussing, can an opiate prescription medication help my osteoarthritis? Now, this is a hugely controversial area where there's huge societal impact and a lot of people receiving prescription opiate medication that potentially don't need to. In the context of osteoarthritis, some studies suggest that upwards of 20% of people with osteoarthritis are on a long-term opiate for pain control. In that context of osteoarthritis, we're here to try to unpack, does this medication help? Could it be harmful? What are the longer-term risks, both to the individual and society, from prescription opiate medication. So the purpose of this joint action episode is to unpack this very controversial topic. And we're joined by a uh, really esteemed world expert, Jeffrey Katz. And so Jeffrey Katz is a rheumatologist, clinician scientist. He's a professor of medicine and orthopedic surgery at the Harvard Medical School and a professor of epidemiology and environmental health at the Harvard School of Public Health. And he's the director of the Orthopedic and Arthritis Center for Outcomes Research at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the immediate past president for the Osteoarthritis Research Society International. Dr. Katz's research has focused on the evaluation and outcomes of musculoskeletal disorders, including carpal tunnel syndrome, 
lumbar spinal stenosis and osteoarthritis and lower extremity joint replacement. And so Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, well, I'm very much looking forward to hearing what you have to say. I guess before we get into the show, cognizant of the fact that this is a highly controversial area where pharma has played uh, some interesting roles, I just think it's really important. Do you have any conflicts of interest that we should be aware of before we get started? No. Fantastic. Now, part of the perspective here is also for listeners to get a sense of who you are before we get into some of the more complex questions. But if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? <laughs> I think I'm curious and friendly. I'm hardworking. I like to teach, I like to write, and I like to learn. How's that? That's superb and something that I've enjoyed alongside you over the years. Now, on a daily basis, obviously a little bit different at the moment with the COVID pandemic in Massachusetts and Boston, can you tell me a little bit more about what you do professionally? Yes, so as you said in your introduction, I, I am a rheumatologist and I have a practice and I see patients on Fridays. I used to do that in a clinic, as most physicians have been accustomed to. I now do it largely by video conferencing, although I have seen a few people. And the rest of the week, or say about three quarters or 80% of my time, I largely do research with some teaching and some administration. And my research focuses largely on osteoarthritis, including surgery for osteoarthritis and physical therapy for osteoarthritis and to some extent use of medications. Now, and when you're not doing your day job, what do you like to do in your spare time? I like to bicycle. I like to walk in the woods with my Springer Spaniel, Ozzy. I'm a sort of fanatical reader of fiction and nonfiction. And as we're sort of in a homework sh shutdown mode here in Boston. I'm hanging out a lot with my wife, Susie, whom I enjoy very much. Fantastic. And I was very fortunate to live in the same neighborhood as Jeff for a number of years when we lived in Boston. And he's uh, very fortunate to have a, a lot of lovely parkland and woodland nearby. And, but I'm just wondering about the derivation of Aussie. It's probably got nothing to do with Australia, I would imagine. No, it's definitely not Aussie. It's, I, you know, our kids made it up and I think it's Ozzy Osbourne, but once that name was sort of surfaced, it, it stuck. But that, that, was, that was their job, so. <laughs> Excellent. All right, so let's get into the, the topic of the day, which is about can opiate medication help my osteoarthritis? In the first instance, it's probably helpful for listeners to know what are the common opioid medications prescription-wise that are available for pain management mm -hmm. that are readily available? We usually think of them as uh, some of the stronger opiates that tend to have more side effects and more analgesic effect, and those include oxycodone and hydrocodone and morphine and uh, sometimes methadone and, and, and fentanyl, which, which many folks have probably heard of because it's increasingly um, used in, in sort of abuse situations. 
And then there are uh, less potent or weaker opioids, including tramadol, uh, which is sort of a synthetic opioid, and codeine. Um, and those, those are, you know, this may vary a little bit around the world, but those account for at least 95% of use in my setting. And how do they work? What, what are the proposed mechanism of action for these products? Opiates directly interact with a set of receptors on nerves, the mu receptors, which convey pain. So they, they interact very directly in the perception of pain. I believe both peripherally and centrally, centrally meaning the brain and peripherally where pain is perceived. And for the purpose of osteoarthritis, are they efficacious for pain relief in this otherwise chronic condition? That seems like a simple question, but many, many studies later, I think it's it's actually contentious. And, and I think you suggested that at the, at the outset of the talk. There are a number of randomized controlled trials, which is uh, where, where people are assigned by a flip of a coin to take either the opiate medication or a placebo. And many of those show that opiates, as one would expect from their basic pharmacology, relieve pain to some extent. Uh, some of them don't show that. And all of them, I, I think almost without exception, are very short term. They might last just a few weeks, never more than six months, But and, whereas this is a chronic condition. So other studies take the view that short-term efficacy may not be that relevant, but if somebody is on opiates for, say, a year or longer, does it influence their level of functioning? And there's pretty good agreement that it does not. And does it influence, you know, whether they receive a joint replacement or not, and there's pretty good evidence that it does not. So I think what we know is that in, in the laboratory, opiates are very strong inhibitors of pain pathways. In trials with people that are short-term, there's actually mixed evidence. In long-term studies of patients, they don't really alter the person's experience terribly much. Um, they do, as you said at the outset, pose side effects, and maybe we'll get into those later. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get into the side effects right now, because obviously on the other side of the ledger to whether they work or not is whether they have side effects. So that, I mean, are they associated with any harms? By virtue of the way they're, they're, they're very mechanism of action, they are sedating. And uh, so people can feel sleepy and they can also feel sort of foggy. And that's a very common complaint for people of people who drive or who operate machinery should really not use opiates because it can cloud their perception and dull their reflexes. You know, some of those side effects are actually very useful for people who get pain worse at the end of a hard day and have a hard time falling to sleep because of pain and taking, you know, an opiate before they go to bed can sort of maximize benefit and minimize harm. Probably the most serious side effect from opiates is that when the amount in a patient's system builds up, the drug can uh, predictably suppress their drive to breathe. And, and so people can really die a respiratory death. And you know, listeners will be familiar to people dying of uh, heroin and other opiate use sort of in the community. And that's the most common reason that they die of overdoses 
by what, what would be termed respiratory suppression, where they just stop breathing. Fantastic. And I mean, obviously, in this context, in an older population, the risk of falls and constipation and, and other elements there and nausea is also pervasive. Yes. Now, one of, one of the arguments that's not infrequently used for people who have uh, end-stage joint disease who are waiting for a joint replacement is this is just a temporizing measure to help them get through until when they have the surgery. In that particular context, do they influence outcomes from joint replacement? Here too, the literature is mixed. I was part of a team that looked at this question uh, probably about five or six years ago from our hospital in Boston. And it appeared that people who were taking opiates preoperatively on a sort of ongoing basis, not just uh, you know, a day here and a day there, had more returns to the operating room and had so complications and also had less complete pain relief. I've just been working with some colleagues recently looking at a much more uh, generalizable data set from claims data in the United States with many thousands of patients. And, and we don't actually see that. So, so I, I think it's not completely Clear. They may well reduce the efficacy of joint replacement. But this is not an area where trials have been done. And so the people that are given opiates no doubt differ systematically from those that don't. And, you know, analysts can try to account for those differences in their analyses. But but we, at the end of the day, we're always left wondering if we got it just right. So, so I, I would say this is another area that, where there's some uncertainty. Now, we've both had the pleasure, you much more closely, of working with Elena Lesina, who's a wonderful colleague of yours who works at the um, Center for Outcomes Research at, at Harvard and the Brigham, who's led a lot of wonderful health economic work, um, and specifically the osteoarthritis policy model that's looked into questions around the cost effectiveness of various interventions, including opioids. In this context for opiate use in osteoarthritis, are they cost effective? No, the, the analyses that we've done suggest that they're not. So it suggests that patients who use these medications at the end of the day, um, the medications are, are, you know, are costly and some of their side effects produce costs. On the other hand, the medications do confer some benefit in terms of pain. And so what the methodology does is to try to evaluate the balance between costs and improvements in quality of life and to compare that with some milestones that are used really around the world to assess whether that balance is sort of reasonable. And what we find with opiate use is that as compared with many other interventions like non-steroidal drugs for osteoarthritis, the ratio of cost to benefits in terms of quality of life improvements is, is high or very unfavorable. That's largely driven by data that suggests that opiates are associated with more complications following surgery, and, and they appear to be, but it's very sensitive to, to that. And because there's some controversy around the level of complications in patients on opiates, there's some uncertainty about cost-effectiveness. But I, I don't want to get too, too technical. I think the simple answer is that they do not appear to be a cost-effective treatment. And from a societal perspective, obviously, one of the, the main concerns about 
prescription opiate medication use is, is that of addiction. So we'll just get into some of the more societal impacts. What is opiate use disorder and how might one recognize that? So opiate use disorder is a problem that you, you can see when patients taking opiates begin to exhibit behaviors that are essentially dysfunctional, inappropriate seeking of opiates from, for example, families, friends, multiple pharmacies. So a, a craving that has, you know, sort of led people to overcome what might consider reasonable judgment and behavior. Um, also, people who develop overt uh, signs of opiate overdose that would be consistent with opiate use disorder. Somebody who's taking a stable dose, even if it's a very high dose of opiates, and you know tends to take their drugs regularly, tends not to ask for additional prescriptions and not to experience a lot of side effects, is an opiate user but is not experiencing opiate use disorder. Right. Another concept that is frequently used in healthcare is that of diversion, but for a lot of people, they may not similarly understand what that is. Can you just explain that? Yeah, you could imagine, for example, somebody, I'll, I'll just give an example and then, and then define it. So somebody receives opiates because they have a surgery that's associated with pain and they get maybe 20 pills of oxycodone and they put them in their medicine cabinet and they use three or four of them and then their pain is resolved. So now they've got a 16 opiate pills in their cabinet and a child or a spouse or a relative, you know, takes them in, you know, without asking or asks them if they have any leftover. And so now what's happened is that the opiates that were prescribed to help somebody get over their surgery, let's say they had a fracture and had surgery to repair it, is now being used by somebody else for a totally different reason and not a very legitimate reason, because otherwise they would have gotten it from their own doctor. So that's the idea of diversion, is opiates prescribed for one reason to one person are used for other reasons by other, by other people. And it's, it's hypothesized based on evidence available that diversion of prescribed opiates is a very important sort of starting point for individuals who go on to have opiate use disorder. Their first, you know, sort of experience in getting hold of opiates is from a, you know, friend, relative, etc., whom they get it from. Now, we hear a lot in the lay press about prescription opiate medication and specifically costs and deaths um, and the magnitude of misuse. But I'm just wondering if you could put that into numerical terms to just give us a sense of what the scale of the opioid problem is. Very happy for you to focus on the US, but I'm not necessarily suggesting that uh, the US is alone in having these challenges. Sure, it is true, I believe, that while the US is not alone, the problem is much more acute here, which is sort of interesting to think about how that developed historically, and, and we can perhaps chat about that. In the US, it, it is a huge problem. It's fortunately getting a little better in terms of amount of opiate used, but it's estimated that over $60 billion were spent on opiate use, including uh, half of that on medical costs, the cost of the drugs, the cost of treating uh, people who had problems related to opiate use, and then people whose opiate use caused them to function poorly or to lose work, another $20 billion. 
and then the cost of actually prosecuting people who commit opiate-related crimes, another $8 billion. Prosecute and, and jail, another $8 billion. But th those are very big numbers. Yeah, and I mean, another hugely concerning thing from a societal perspective is the number of people who unfortunately overdose and die as a consequence of this. And in the US, as you mentioned, it's potentially more acute than in other countries. But again, can you just give us some numbers to get a sense of the scale of the magnitude of the problem? I mean, it's been estimated that three quarters of a million people have died in the last 20 years from a drug overdose. And um, it, it's interesting that of all the overdose deaths that occurred in a recent year, the majority actually were due to a prescribed opioid, to, to opioid pills rather than, say, to um, you know, heroin from the street. So, so, so the opioid problem includes both illicit drugs you know, bought from dealers on the street, heroin, increasingly fentanyl, but also from prescribed drugs that are then resold or, you know, diverted in that fashion. And the latter problem is as large, if not larger than the former. Yeah, and it's, um, I mean, obviously a staggering number of deaths and a huge societal impact and hopefully uh, something that we can start addressing soon. And as you mentioned before, there have been fortunately some declines in the number of people who are, who are using it. But from a prescription standpoint, opioid medications are not infrequently co-prescribed with uh, benzodiazepines, so things like Valium or sleeping tablets. Do you have any concerns or comments on that particular practice? Now, this is a very high-risk combination because both kinds of medications are sedating and can potentiate each other, or in other words, work together to make people both become sleepy and foggy and, and lose their judgment, but also have respiratory depression, you know, leading potentially to, to death. Here, the good news is that, you know, as listeners will appreciate their, just by your own experiences as a doctor, increasingly medical records are now housed on electronic systems that are able to identify prescription combinations that are dangerous and and call the, those out and also there's been quite a bit of education on this so I I, I would say I, I, I'm in my early 60s so I've been you know kind of in this field for a long time and I would say that this is a problem we're genuinely seeing less and less and less of um, at least among prescribed opiates is is, is co-prescription with benzodiazepine what people use on the street that they've bought you know diversion, market is a different story, and, I, and I'm not really that knowledgeable. No, 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 that's perfect. Obviously, we're talking about the context of osteoarthritis and potentially the role of opioids um, in that specific context, but hopefully the evidence that you've presented just now will, will help to put opiates in that context. But I think it's really important for people to understand, obviously, we might be uh, sidelining opiates, but are there other alternatives to opiates for the management of pain? for a person that has osteoarthritis? I think, I mean, um, you know, osteoarthritis brings people to see clinicians because of pain. So pain is really the, the presenting symptom in most cases. It's, in fact, it's pain leading to loss of valued activities, really, that, 
that because people with osteoarthritis pain can often just become less active, sit down, and, and their pain is predictably reduced, but, but it means that they're not doing activities they want to do. And so, so treating pain is a really critical issue. There's, I think we're increasingly aware before we even get to medications that there are you know, non-pharmacologic approaches to pain that are, that are actually quite, quite effective, uh, including Tai Chi and medication, uh, including just good sort of sleeping habits and exercise habits, which tend not in the moment, but over time to uh, increase pain uh, tolerance. But certainly many people really require medications in order to be able to get things done. The, the workhorse for patients with osteoarthritis is non-steroidal inflammatory medications. Many people will recognize you know, ibuprofen and naproxen as very typical examples of these. Some of these medications are available excuse me, available in a topical form, which is often very useful because there are fewer gastrointestinal side effects when used uh, topically and that, and, and gastrointestinal side effects, usually just, you know, epigastric pain is one of the key limiting factors. So, so, uh, so non-steroidals are the workhorse. They are not for everyone. You know, there are people who have very fragile kidney function for whom non-steroidals are actually dangerous because they uh, impair kidney function. People with very fragile coronary artery disease and heart failure can have those problems exacerbated by non-steroidals. And, and, and this is one of the reasons that clinicians they need to have some flexibility uh, in the use of pain medications because there are folks for whom non-steroidals are simply not an option. There's a medication called duloxetine, which is a, um, a type of antidepressant that uh, it turns out is effective in people with osteoarthritis, whether they have depression or not. And that, that's being used increasingly. It too has a, a fair amount of side effects, not anywhere near as serious as the opiate-related side effects, but bothersome effects on the gastrointestinal system, on thinking clearly and the like. And so, so it's, it's not, not everybody can take duloxetine, but that that does, you know, tend to be helpful. Tylenol is something that's, you know, used for pain in many different situations and used a lot in osteoarthritis. It's not really all that potent is, I think, what we've learned from our patients and from our studies. And so, you know, patients with one joint that bothers them a whole lot often benefit in the short term from injecting that joint with for example, a cortisone-like medication. So, so there's a lot of strategies, you, you know, that allow one to avoid opiates by and large. But you know, for each of these medicines, there's people who can't take them because of one intolerance or another, and and and, um, and so sometimes opiates are are really the only sort of reasonable choice. But that that's really quite rare. Fantastic. That's a good balanced perspective on all of that. Now, for the opiate medication, for a person who's been on this for a long period of time, uh, who may be addicted or experiencing side effects, who's considering ceasing the medication, it's not something they probably want to do suddenly or uh, without appropriate supervision. But if there is a person out there who's on a long-term opiate, for the management of their osteoarthritis, who's planning or thinking about coming off it, how might they think about doing so? 
Yeah, I, I've actually developed a lot of experiences with this in my practice. You know, I've been in practice a long time, as I was mentioning. And so I both inherited a number of people on high doses of opiates and actually started people on opiates. And then as we've learned more and more over the last decade, have begun to work with them to get them off. Patients are usually pretty open to that. And you really have to go slow because there is an opiate withdrawal a syndrome that is um, really uncomfortable for for patients. And my, my thought on this is that, you know, there's no urgency to get this done in a matter of days or even weeks. If somebody's on a moderate dose of opiates, I usually think about a season to say, you know, look, summer is coming. And I think by, you know, early to mid fall, we can get you off. And that allows you to make very small reductions, you know, every week or three times a month. And, that, that tends to work well. I, I've actually not had an experience where anybody's gotten into any trouble. And I've actually not had an experience where they've just sort of, you know, sort of protested and said, you know, no more. I either stay on or I'm leaving your practice. So, so I've found this to be helpful. But, but I think people need a lot of support, you know, from the physicians they're working with and from their families uh, because this, this is a change and it has some physiologic uh, changes that accompany it. And I think that that perspective is brilliant. And we'll also provide in the show notes um, just a link uh, for the Center of Disease Control's guidelines so that that way people can actually get some sense as to what Jeff is saying there. Um, now, as we were saying in the outset, this is a highly controversial area where some elements of the pharma industry have played a very controversial role, both with regards to potentially misleading advertising and payments to healthcare professionals. But do you have any thoughts on why this has become so pervasive, particularly amongst the population in the Western world? Yes, I, I can. I mean, they're not very original thoughts. I, I've read a lot in this area, and I can tell you what I think most people in the field believe happened over time, which certainly makes sense to me. And, you know, to start that story, we probably need to go back to the 1980s or 90s when, uh, maybe 1980s, when um, there was increasing duration in the cancer treatment world that people with advanced cancer, and in particular with bone metastases, which are just excruciatingly painful, were not being treated adequately. And so there was a lot of real innovation occurring in the pharmaceutical industry to develop a long-acting opiates that could control this pain. And there was a great deal of interest on in the part of physicians who treated these patients and people interested in uh, palliative care, which wasn't even really a specialty at that time, in using medications so that people with cancer could escape this prison of excruciating pain. And it was natural then to begin to think and about people with non-cancer pain who had chronic pain day after day and whether, you know, whether uh, their lives could be made more comfortable by more attention to their levels of pain. Prior to that period of time, opiates were, uh, generally speaking, simply not used for chronic non-cancer pain. And here, I think, is where the pharmaceutical industry, you know, by most accounts, did play a role in seeing a market of, there's a lot of people have cancer, but lots more people have back pain and osteoarthritis and other causes of non-cancer pain. And so we, for example, and this may be familiar to some listeners, began to be tuned into the idea of pain as the fifth 
vital signs. So in addition to people's temperature and blood pressure and pulse and breathing rate, you should understand their level of pain and if it's too high uh, and they're uncomfortable, treat it. So there was a real sense that pain was systematically undertreated, that that was a cruel aspect of medical care and that, that we did possess medications that could really improve the quality of life of these patients. And so I think as you can tell the way that I framed that, you know, this, this did not start certainly as a way of hurting patients, but, but helping them. I would say that, you know, some of the messaging that I'm describing was provided by the very companies who sell these medicines, but a lot of it was provided by other parties, including you know, some of the nonprofit, you know, societies and professional organizations that, you know, that looked after the, the welfare of these patients. So I think those forces sort of in combination kind of got the ball rolling. And I think also that it sometimes takes a while in public health problems to really understand the magnitude of a problem if you're only treating a patient here or a patient there. So I think physicians were hurting patients without knowing it. But as we began to see data on opioid-related deaths and opioid use disorder and, um, you know, diversion of, you know, medications and people using multiple pharmacies to stay on their opioids, none of which was brand new, but as that sort of began to accelerate and become documented in studies, then I think we realized we had a huge problem in around the year 2010 or 2012, which was sort of the, in the U.S., that was sort of the peak of the problem. We had those mortality rates that I mentioned earlier. And, you know, fortunately, in the last five or six years, we've seen a steady reduction in the amount of opiates prescribed. And, you know, along with that, a reduction in the number of opiate-related deaths. So, so I think that fortunately there are there's been a lot of education about you know the the harms and and really about the the sort of the mistake of prescribing opiates much too readily to to patients. Many patients now are really fearful of opiates because they've heard these public health messages and will say before you even raise the question, my pain is terrible, but I'm definitely not taking opiates. And, um, and, and that, that to me represents a real culture shift. I was not hearing that 10 years ago. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a brilliant summary and a, and a great perspective on uh, something that took decades to evolve and will probably take a number of decades to wind down. But if you know, people out there are particularly interested in it. Look at some of the literature related to Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family and, and OxyContin marketing if they want to pursue that. Now, are you aware of any patient-friendly resources on the topic of opiate prescription medication in osteoarthritis that might shed further light for listeners who want to dig into this further? The CDC, uh, which publishes very nice patient materials, has a pretty friendly website, and they have a drug overdose section on their website. The CDC is the Center for Disease Control in the United States. That's a good area, and I think many of the pain uh, organizations do as well, but I think the CDC is a really good place to start. And we'll include that in the show notes. So, Jeff... Um, on the topic of opiate medications and osteoarthritis, is there anything that I forgot to ask that you think we should elaborate on? No, I, I think that, you know, I, I guess what I would sort of leave with also is to, because many listeners either themselves be taking opiates for osteoarthritis or know people who are, is to, you know, recognize that that these are complicated decisions and 
you know, people who are taking them today uh, where there's a lot greater awareness may be doing so because there are circumstances in their medical history that make alternatives, you know, really not very tractable or perhaps even more dangerous. So I, I, I think, you know, as a society, we're, we're reducing harm by getting more people off these and by starting many, many fewer people on them. But I, I, I just would just would caution that, you know, they, they are still sometimes used and anybody who's on one who wants to have a frank conversation with their physician about whether that's the best idea, that's a great conversation to have. And I would encourage it. But many of them have already had that conversation and are on it because it seemed like a reasonable compromise given some difficult alternatives and a disease that's frankly very painful. So I guess I would just leave listeners with with that. Um, yeah, that. I think very sound and, and balanced uh, advice. So moving on, what's the biggest challenge, Jeff, that you have with your specific role right now and how are you going to overcome that? Well, you know, maybe pertinent to our conversation, you know, as a clinician, I treat a lot of osteoarthritis. Pain continues to be the major issue with osteoarthritis. Our population is getting heavier, you know, more obese and not less for a wide range of reasons. And so, so I think one thing that I face, you know, every week is trying to treat pain in a way that keeps people moving, but doesn't harm them. And I think that the opiate discussion that we've just had is, you know, a big piece of that, you know, trying to use medications and increasingly non-medical therapy that is safe. So I, I would say that's one of the large, you know, problems that I overcome. I, I sort of interface research and clinical care and clinical policy. And I guess another problem that really, I think, you know, we, we walked through in this conversation is trying to take the best of what we know from research and to make recommendations to patients that are, you know, evidence-based and sensible and try to keep them out of trouble while really attending to the idea that every patient is a little bit different. And so, as I mentioned before, there will be the, the occasional patient who, for whom opiates is probably the best choice, although it's not an especially good choice. And so, so that notion of trying to be able to make individual choices given the best evidence that we have, and then to the extent that I play a role in influencing policy in my institution, for example, and in the things that we write, to try to not make statements that are too doctrinaire, because I don't think that that we really help our patients by, by doing that. Yeah, I think it's a really important point that you make there, particularly as we move towards individualizing care. Um, some of the recommendations that come out from guidelines are great for large populations, but may not necessarily be as ascribable to specific individuals as they could be. Now, if you could remove all barriers and constraints uh, in the work that you do as a, particularly as I guess as a, as a researcher, what project would you do? Well, what that's really interesting to me, and actually uh, David and I are sort of doing some preliminary work on this together, is to ask the question of whether we could prevent osteoarthritis before it really gets going. And we work with a very, very talented colleague uh, in the States who's leading a project like this that we're hoping can move forward. So that's a, a kind of a, a big idea, I think, simple, but a, but a big idea. Yeah, prevention of osteoarthritis would be a holy grail, I think, and uh, a landmark setting point in the field. 
how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things within your professional role? I mentioned that, you know, this is sometimes a problem for me, but as I get older, I recognize it increasingly as a strength. I, I'm really extremely curious and I, I just read all the time and I, and I like listening. So I actually really enjoy continuing to learn. So I, you know, tune into webinars, I read journals, I um, attend conferences and, and I'm always trying to just kind of figure out what we could all be doing differently. So, so I guess for me, that is what makes the work that, that I do really fun is that there is the opportunity and I would say the imperative to just keep learning. Um, yeah, we're, we're blessed in the roles that we have that continued learning is both a reward, but also a stimulus for us to pursue additional questions. Now, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it say and why? Oh, how interesting. I think it would be to say, listen carefully and speak humbly. I feel that that is a, a good message for the era. And I think it might apply to the professional work that we do and to the political context we find ourselves in. Um, and is probably good, good advice <laughs> to people in old. As, as you say, incredibly relevant for our, our current era as well. But I mean, timely advice, I think, irrespective of the current era. Um, and in closing, is there one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people with osteoarthritis? Yes, I, I think people with osteoarthritis, you know, can be, you know, convinced by the selective reading they do and by the friends and family who speak with them that they that they have a terrible problem that's really going to change their life. And I, I'm convinced being in the for quite a number of years that that's just not true at all. This is a challenging disease, but where there are many solutions of different sorts. And, and so I think it's just useful to be cared for in a center where people really appear to be interested in this problem. Unfortunately, as you know, you and I both know, not everybody is, but where people continue to be interested in this problem and they will, they will open themselves up to a whole new world of thinking about sort of holistic care, about the importance of exercise, about using medications carefully, about um, thinking about surgery in a way that is not frightening, and um, but rather you know realistic. And so I, I'd like to think for people out there for whom this disease saps them of their hope, I would urge them to participate in a in a in a therapeutic community in a center that really cares about this disorder, so that they can you know regain the sense of hope and vitality. I people with osteoarthritis today are generally highly functional, highly productive, happy souls. And, and, and I think in part it, it represents, you know, a sort of attitude that they've come to embrace by virtue of where they're getting their information and the folks that are supporting them um, clinically. So, so I guess that, that's more than just a piece of advice, but that would be a philo philosophical posture that I would propose. A very positive philosophy for us to close off on. So Jeff, thank you so much for your, your thoughts, your, your balanced perspective, uh, the insights, um, and the critique that you provided over a, a very controversial area. It's great to spend some time with you and have a chance to chat to you about it. That's all for this episode of Joint Action. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong and stay active, and thank you so much for listening.
Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.